All right. What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to another Serious Angler podcast powered by our friends over at X2 Power Batteries. As always, I'm your host, Bailey Eichbritt, and I am back from Louisiana. I was in Louisiana all last week, and uh, I am solo hosting tonight because, unfortunately, the captain, Mr. Andy Full, is not feeling too well tonight. So he's taking the night off, especially because he covered for me all last week, and he... Uh, he, he held down the fort, so he uh, he earned himself a night off, especially because if he was on tonight, he'd be muted the whole night because that man is coughing up a storm. So uh, if you guys are talking with Andy, I know Andy's super social. You guys talk to him all the time over over social media. Shoot him a message. Tell him uh, you hope he feels better, and uh, he'll, hopefully he'll be back here, here real soon. But uh, we have a really cool show tonight. We're getting on Mr. Mark Menendez to talk about the TVA, you know, what's the status on Kentucky Lake, uh, some of the fisheries on the Tennessee River that are doing well, some of them that may be on the downfall, why they might be on the downfall, and really kind of dive into the biology of all the things because we know he has a history in that. He's got the, he has the the repertoire to speak on such a subject. So it's going to be pretty cool to pick his brain on it and obviously just talk bass fishing because there's a lot to be learned from our guest tonight. But before I bring him on, a couple of things for you guys. Uh, obviously, being that last week was the Hobie Tournament of Champions that I fished. Uh, did not have the finish that I'd like, but it was a pretty humbling experience making that top 50 national championship. The videos from that are going to come out. So Chasing Hardware, that series that I do on my personal YouTube channel, is down below uh, in the description if you guys want to go check that out. I'm going to try to drop episode one from last week tomorrow night. So be on the lookout for that. But um, coming up this weekend, something really cool for you guys. You guys know we like to get in on charity tournaments that go on. Our buddy, Mr. Jackson Orr, who's been on the show before, he's got a big uh, big stake in the kayak side of things. He is running a charity tournament this weekend. Uh, it's $20. You could, whether you want to compete or not, if you just feel like donating to a good cause, uh, feel free to enter. The link for Jackson's tournament is down below. It's a three-day thing. It's online uh, on Tourney X. So I'm, I'm going to hop in it. I'm going to try to fish it like it's a live event to have some fun and the top six people actually the top six out of however many people signed up the the money is spread in percentages and based on your placement that percentage of money that you would win in that place is going to charity of your choosing so if you get first you get to choose what charity goes to all the way down to sixth place so something that's really cool for a great cause jackson's doing an awesome job over there and uh, highly encourage you to if you got if you're not locked up yet you know, your season's not already over like some of our friends in the Midwest uh, to fish that. And if you are locked up and you just want to do it for a good cause, um, feel free to click the link down below and just donate 20 bucks to uh, to an awesome charity. So that is down below. Feel free to reach out if you have any questions on that. But I think without further ado, that is all I have in store for our notes for you folks. Let's bring on our guest for tonight, Mr. Mark Menendez. How are you, sir? I'm doing well, Bailey. How are you? I'm I'm doing good. I uh, it feels nice to have the season over with. I'm sure. I mean, you know, full well. Like when you get that last tournament out of the way, it's like you know you don't get to rest for too long. So I'm sure you guys get get fired up with business side of things, getting ready for the next season. But you kind of get to take a little bit of a breath. You know, you get to relax maybe for a day or two. Well, you can't really tell. Um, you see, my face is really red, but uh, I didn't get a very good tan because I was in Jamaica all of last week with my wife celebrating our first anniversary and just cooling out and spending a little time together. So, uh, yeah, it's really nice to turn it off sometimes to just get away from 
everything that's going on in your life, whether it's fishing, business, kids, whatever it is, uh, it's a, uh, it, it was good to do that. Uh, you know, sometimes, uh, sometimes health becomes an issue and I, and maybe I'd like to take just a second and wish my best wishes to my good friend, former Bassmaster Elite Pro, Randy Yarnell, who's going to have a very serious surgery tomorrow. I want to wish Randy uh, all the all the health and good safety that he can have uh, tomorrow. It's a big day for him tomorrow. Uh, got to be good friends fishing with Randy on the top 150s years ago. Um, super good guy. Helps all the Wounded Warrior tournaments up there in the Northeast. Just a fantastic human being and a good friend and fisherman, and I just want to wish him well for tomorrow. Yeah, hopefully that goes well and keep us updated on uh, how that turns out. That's never an easy thing, especially when you know it's coming. It's kind of more daunting when you don't know it's coming, like going into a surgery. So hopefully that goes well for him. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Mark, I'm excited to talk with you tonight because – the TVA is one where, you know, I talk to my friends down south and they're like, oh, man, every time we go down, you know, for tournaments, they're like, oh, it's going to be tough because, you know, we go to Chickamauga every now and then for at the Hobie Trail. And they're like, oh, this place has 1,400 boats on it every single day. But for, for us New York folk, it's cool because we go down and like say like at Lake Chickamauga, it's so diverse in terms of how you can catch them, especially throughout, you know, throughout the year. So every time I've gone down there, I've caught fish doing something completely different than the last time I've been there. I love the place, um, but I've always heard of these different lakes in the TVA, you know, Kentucky Lake that you know so well that I've heard just legends of and who better than to get you on here to talk about it, especially because you have a history in was it fisheries biology. Is that, is that correct? Fisheries biology degree. Yes. So I, I'd love to dive into that in a second, but what we do with everyone that's brand new to the show, their first episode with us is we like to throw it back to the beginning. Uh, and that is, how did you get your start bass fishing in the first place? Like, where, when did you catch your first bass? Who got oh, who got you into bass fishing in the first place? Like, where did where did everything start for you? Well, it uh, it all started. My mother says she has pictures of me at eighteen months old in a diaper fishing in a minnow bucket for two minnows with a stick and a string. So it kind of starts way back then. Uh, moves a little bit further forward, and I've always fished with my grandfather or whatever. We always fished. And, um, we moved out of the County into town when I was about eight years old. And, uh, this was in the seventies. And when bass clubs were heavily prevalent across the United States, bass fishing tournament fishing was just young. It was getting a a foothold in the, in the country. And, uh, my next door neighbor was a big bass clubber. His name was Clyde Watts and Clyde was a telephone executive back then. And, uh, he had a big, giant inboard outboard bass boat you know how many of those have you seen in your lifetime bailey i didn't see many of them even then but um he had two sons that were athletes and they really didn't have time to fish so every time he would park that big blue bass boat in his garage i'd come over and see what kind of baits were laying in the floor and that's a bomber and that's a rapala and that's a whopper stopper and you know a bushwhacker spinner bait and things like that and i finally wore him down and he took me fishing and, um, at about five o'clock on that day, I, he said, well, Mark, it's time to go. Ms. Watts will have dinner on the table. And I said, oh no, Mr. Watts, this is a 10 year old kid says, oh no, Mr. Watts, we can't go. It's not dark yet. Well, <laughs> Bailey, that sealed the deal with Clyde. And I fished with Clyde from the time I was 10 to about 14, two times a weekend, most of the time, uh, from the first of February through, through Christmas every year until it got too cold and muddy here to fish 
and um, developed a, a, a strong friendship and mentorship with him. He has now passed away and gone on to the big fishing hole in the sky. And so another neighbor in the backyard who the dad of my best friend was the tournament stick in the area uh, back in the seventies. His name was David Hutchison. He won every tournament, Bailey. He won them all in the spring um, and in the summer. So he taught me the aspects of a lot of tournament fishing from the time I was 14 till the time I was about 18 or 20. And um, we fished a lot of tournaments together. Uh, his son, David Jr. and I are, are business partners and still best friends. We fish together quite a bit still. So we spent a lot of time together traveling around to regional tournaments and fishing on Kentucky and Barkley Lakes then. And then it just went wild. Uh, uh, if, if, you know, if, if I'd had college fishing, I'd still be a second semester sophomore back when I was in college, I'd still be trying to figure a way to fish. So, uh, it's really neat to see what's happened to fishing. And, and that's kind of been my path to, to the Bassmaster elites, um, started fishing bass, the invitationals in fall of 91 was lucky enough to make it to the top 100s spring of 92. And I've been there ever since. So I've had a long career, had a, in my opinion, I, I've been very successful at it, uh, winning events, making classics, setting records, all those crazy things that you never thought about when all you really wanted to do was just get there. And uh, so I've been very fortunate for a very long time trying to give back to the fisheries and trying to give back to the, um, the, the, the ecology and the environment these days to make it, make it good for my kids and for your kids as it was when I started. Yeah, so, so talk about – talk about that a little bit is the, how did you get your background in fisheries biology? Well, I wanted to go straight to fishing the pros, but my parents would not allow me to do that. <laughs> so you got to have a plan, son. And so I, I, I got my degree in fisheries biology and fit probably fished too much during my undergrad years and started a master's in education and um, spring of 91 in April, it was time to go sign up for Bassmaster events down in Montgomery. And I told my mom, I said, I'll see you. I'll be back tomorrow. I'm going to Montgomery, Alabama, and I'm going to go sign up for the Bassmaster uh, Invitationals. And um, I drove down, signed up, started fishing that that fall. And uh, like I said, been lucky enough to be there ever since. So um, the biology degree ended, ended up being a secondary, you know, plan B kind of thing if fishing didn't work out. And fortunately, it gave me a good foundation to understand what was going in the in the in the system, in the environment, the chemistry, the biology, the limnology of things, and um, so that has helped in certain certain places and certain aspects. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to just understanding fish behavior, I feel like that has to kind of that definitely has to help, right? I mean, you definitely probably learned some things throughout the education that has helped you clue in on some fish behavior stuff. Well, there has, and and you know, some of it was chemistry. Um, you know, I sitting in chemistry class one day and we were talking about uh, free radicals or whatever we were talking about. And it just, it, 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 it hit me. Hydrogen peroxide is H3O or excuse me, H2O2, uh, H, H2O2. And, um, if I put that in water, one of those free oxygen radicals is going to break off. So it become more stable and become a water molecule and an extra oxygen. Well, if you pour that in your live well with limited quantities, you can keep bass alive. Hmm. How many times have you caught a big smallmouth, Bailey? Of course, the smallmouth always bite on the end of the Olympic cast. 
and you sling it way out there. As soon as it hits the bottom or it's on its way down, you hook one. They jump 17 times like cheerleaders. They pull like a freight train going the other way. And when you get them in the boat, you put them in a live well, they're laying over there on their side going, hey, I'm tired. Mm-hmm. You know, a cup full of hydrogen peroxide about that big, put it right in your water. That breaks apart. The oxygen, oxygen molecules break off. There's more free radicals of oxygen in the water. Within 30 seconds, that smallmouth catches his breath. He's going to bite your finger. You're not going to change the pH of the water. You're not going to hurt anything. Uh, it's an inert substance, and it throws off extra oxygen. So I started doing that a long time ago. I saved a many a TVA river bass out there on those ledges, catching them on big crankbaits like that in hot, hot water by keeping a pint of peroxide in the in the boat with me at all times. That was one, that was my biggest thing that I learned in college, Bailey. I promise you, that was one of the biggest biggest things I ever used. It's taken me till just now to learn that that's actually a thing. Why? Why isn't? Why aren't people talking about that? Well, I, I don't know. Um, you can you can d- have negative effects if you put too much in there. You're using a too strong, but a one percent is never going to hurt. Um, I have found some other things to keep my fish alive that um, are, are better, even better. Um, the uh, the VT2 vent, which is a vent that allows that live well to breathe. The thing that hurts our fish in our live well is when we shut them up in there in that airtight live well are the natural metabolic gases that the fish produce. PP, fish PP. It's got, it's got ammonia and urea in it. By having this VT2 vent in, in your top of your live well, you're pushing air in that live well down into the live well creating a turbulence and it goes out the back of the the vent. So what it's doing is a, it is dropping the temperature in your live well, three to five degrees, even on the hottest of days, cooler water holds more oxygen. So if you cool that water from 90 to 87, 87 to 84, 80 to 79, whatever it is, it holds more oxygen. Secondary to that, it's let all that bad stuff percolate out, which is good. It's like being in a smoke-filled room. When you go into a restaurant or a bar and it's full of smoke, same deal. I'm headed out the door. I'm, I'm getting out of there. Fish don't like it either. And then the third thing it does is it's actually by the vortex that is created where it comes in the front and goes out the back, it's driving dissolved oxygen into the water. So if you have a problem with your um, live well pumps that day, While you're actually running from spot to spot, you're putting more oxygen in the water. So you can conceivably make a full day without having your live well pumps on. So that device, the VT2 vent, has been the number one thing that I hardly ever use any other substances. I will use a little G-juice sometimes um, when I get in, uh, um, uh, you know, on the coast and and I'm in tidal waters. Um, the G juice is real good. Uh, and then if I've got a wound, a fish that's bleeding, I'll put a little G juice on it and, or I'll put a little, uh, Mountain Dew or some kind of a, a soda pop on there so that the carbonic acid, if I've got a hook that that's making the fish bleed, uh, the carbonic acid in the, in the soft drink nullifies that coagulates that blood and that fish will live. So those are the three things that I do a little bit of peroxide, a little bit of Coke, Coca-Cola and or the VT2 vents, and I save a lot of fish. Makes me a lot of extra money with no dead fish penalties. Wow. So I've always heard about this, this Mountain Dew argument, and that that's the reason why. That's like the, the legitimate reason as to why that works is because of 
the carbonic acid, the carbonic acid that's in the soft drink. It can be sparkling water as long as it's carbonated. It can be Coca-Cola. It can be Mountain Dew. It can be Dr. Pepper. It can be Sprite, any soft drink that you like. I don't drink soft drinks. I haven't had one in probably 10 years, but there's Mm -hmm. always three or four in my boat just for that reason. And when that carbonic acid hits that fish's blood, it absolutely coagulates it and stops the bleeding eight out of 10 times. So it's one more tool that I'll use to keep that bass alive, keep the resource going and get him into the tournament. People let them take care of him. And then he can be released alive um, and, and, and live a happy life after that. Little things like that are, are kind of some of the cool things that I've learned over the years. That is super cool. Yeah, that's awesome. So talking about Kentucky Lake, you actually just mentioned you had a great day today. That was sure at Kentucky. Yeah, I had was filming my TV show, Mark Menendez Bass TV. You can look at it on YouTube once they air on my local television station. Um, it, 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 it's been really tough here. It's been really difficult to get shows done. I mean, catching four, five, six bass a day, I'm thrilled to catch it. But today, in about three and a half hours, I had 10 keepers, had a fish well in the four and a half pound class, multiple three pounders, and they're beautiful, Bailey. They're, they're big and fat. They got those big black spots on them though you know they're all tattooed up now because the cold water makes that kind of come out it's just a big freckle on them and uh they were biting a a, a series three a strike king series three and a and a three three xd in chartreuse shad and they were choking it today um so it was really neat to get a to get a good show in and just to see the health and welfare after um the long drought of uh how the quality and fishing on Kentucky Lake has gone down over the years. You get a good day in. It's always a plus. Yeah. We're going to talk more about Kentucky Lake here and, and the whole TVA as, as a, as a system in here in a second. But one thing that just piqued my interest that I have to ask that the angler in me is screaming is you mentioned a series three and a three XD. Yes. When do you throw those two and like what factors determined for you to throw one over the other? Well, you know, the Series 3 is probably one of the weedless, most weedless diving crankbaits there is because that bill is exactly the shape of my thumb and it doesn't dig into rocks or cover real bad. It deflects off of it. And a crankbait is all about deflection, making that bait deflect. Even today, in that cold water today, really not cold, it's, it's cooler. We're down to 56 degree water here. It's been in the 60s for months here. Um, and we're just now starting to get cold, you've got to make that deflection. And most of those good fish I caught today were when either one of those crankbaits hit a rock and scooted off to one side or the other. Every bite I had today was on a deflection. So the the three is my workhorse. I have caught, I could sink my Skeeter bass boat with what I've caught on a Series 3 over the years. But today I tried something a little bit different. Um, I haven't thrown that 3XD all that much just because I haven't had what I thought were the right conditions. And we're experiencing quite a few zebra mussels in Kentucky Lake right now and uptick in those. Our water's pretty clean. I can see three and a half or four feet down. Seeing a lot of activity on the corners of the points, along the riprap walls, along the sides of the points in 8 to 10. And so I, the, the Series 3 itself will only dive about seven feet on 10-pound line. But but the three XD, I was my active target was showing me getting it down to eleven, making long casts with ten and getting it down to that eight to eleven. So I'm keeping it on the bottom, making it deflect in that eight to ten. 
And that was the big key today. Uh, right where the right where the point broke off and started to flatten out right there was where those fish were located. That little bit cleaner water, I learned that I've not been fishing deep enough all fall. I've had a really hard fall trying to struggle and get these shows done. Got one more to get. Now I know I need to throw that bait that's diving a little bit deeper just because of water clarity. Beautiful conditions today, overcast, 10 to 15 mile an hour winds out of the northwest. And um, and they were they were chasing bait really well today. That's that's super intriguing. It's I think that's one of the things as anglers we kind of overlook is like just that small differences and that a crankbait is not a crankbait, if that makes sense. So it's people think, oh, just because it reaches this depth, I'll throw whatever as long as it hits that depth, where that might not exactly be the case. Well, you know, it the series three's always been so good because the watercolor has always been a little bit you know, more turbid here. As we get some rains, those fish are going to, it's going to get a little more dingy. The fish are going to slide up on those little shallow places, uh, those walls, those corners, those points. And then that series three will come back. But until we get that water clarity, you bet you one thing, I'm going to be throwing the three XD a heck of a lot more than I have been. That's super, that's, it makes me want to go buy some series threes now because I've never thrown them. That makes me want to go test those babies out now. Well, I don't want everybody just to go out and run out and get them a bunch of them. But, you know, when I started working with Strike King 20-some years ago, we were basically a spinnerbait and a jig company. And we came out with a line of crankbaits, a Series 1, the Series 3, the Series 4, the Series 5, and the Series 6. And they were basic crankbaits. The best crankbait we make today, we're still making, was in that first bunch, is a Series 5. That's one of the best fish-catching baits of all times, that one bait. And the other baits are great, but this one really stood out. And then the XD series came out, getting baits down in that 18 to 20 foot depth with a 6XD or, a, you know, now the 5XD, the 10XD. You know, we, we, we started going into deeper areas, but this regular Series 5 is, is ask some of my Strike King teammates what the best crankbait we make is, and I bet you most of them will tell you that it's a Series 5. And it's a 25-year-old bait. I'm going to have to put that to the test. I'm going to have to shoot Mark Rose and Kevin and all them a text and be like, all right, let's see. What's your favorite striking crankbait? I know what Kevin will say. We'll I know exactly up. what Kevin will say. Kevin will say the best crankbait we ever made was Series 5. And, um, you know, you can have some translucent colors up there where you live. A, a green gizzard is a bad boy up there. Um, and you can take that Series 5 over some of those shallower shoals that you all have there on Lake Erie or Lake Ontario and crank it over the top of those. And, um, yeah, things get real interesting real fast. I won't, I won't say any more. Just, just have super sharp hooks. is all I can say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And be, and be ready to keep replacing those super sharp hooks. Cause you're going to, that's true. That's true. That's awesome. Well, so let's kind of talk about Kentucky Lake. What, what is the current, you know, you mentioned it's, you know, four to six fish can be a decent day out there as of right now, but, what, what's the current status of Kentucky and where do you see it going as we move forward? Well, I'm very optimistic, Bailey. I tell you, I'm, I'm really optimistic. Um, let me back up a little and, and tell a little of the history of what has gone on. Okay. You know, we had a, an elite series on Kentucky Lake in 18. It took over 90 pounds to win. I finished in the top 12 of that event. Um, and I think I caught about 60 pounds um, in the first three days of the tournament. Um, that was a false event. 
that was a really, the lake was telling us a lie. Those were the last of the big adult class fish that we had, last of the ledge fish, last of the bush fish that were left in the lake. And our lake was on the downhill slide, going down the roller coaster because of the invasion of uh, invasive species, you know, Asian carp. There are four different kinds. Right. There are the silvers that are the jumpers, the big heads, which are the big eaters that get over 100 pounds. You have grass carp. Then you have one that's not getting much publicity called a black carp. And it disturbs the bottom content looking for mollusks and snails, anything you can find. And it just absolutely rips the bottom substrate up. So that's the one I'm the most concerned with. So as those numbers climbed, there's a, there's a, a situation called the carrying capacity. Each body of water, whether it's a golf course pond, the lake in your neighborhood, or the Great Lakes, X is the carrying capacity. That's the maximum number of fish that it can hold. That can be all bass, that can be all carp, that can be all salmon, that can be all trout, that can be all walleye, but that's all it's going to hold. So Mother Nature finds a balance there so that everybody can thrive and live. And the carp come in and spawn and grow so quickly that they push your native species out. And the first things that you see take a hit are your largemouth bass and your crappie because what they eat gets pushed completely out of the system. Uh, your thread fin and your gizzard shed, those numbers go to bare bone low minimums. So then you see the domino effect of these minnow eating fish, white bass, rockfish, crappie, and bass. They just, they just take off and they, they head to the bottom. The numbers do. So that's what happened um, in 19. There were no more adult bass, hardly at all, um, left in the lake. So 19 and 20 got really tough, and then I started seeing lots of small fish. And um, we're in a great place right now. We have scads of 13 to 16-inch bass in the lake. And what's been really remarkable are our smallmouth. I don't have creel data for this, Bailey, mm -hmm. but I would I, just from what I'm seeing being caught, I'm seeing that our smallmouth population now supersedes the amount of largemouth. So our black bass population, I would say our smallmouth population is 55 to 60% now, which that's not a bad thing. Seeing a lot of three and a half to five pound smallmouth being caught. It's hard to catch a five pound largemouth, but it's not too hard to catch a two and a half to three pounder right now. So we're really seeing some cool things. Two weeks ago, before I went to Jamaica um, for my vacation, I filmed a show with uh, Bateman. Uh, Kevin Baxter, who works as a cameraman and producer for me. Um, and uh, we had a beautiful day, just like today. It was low overcast, warmer, water, air temperature was in the 60s, water temperature was in the 60s. I think I'm getting ready to stomp the smallmouth, a new one, with a spinnerbait, and it never happened, Bailey. I, it never happened. I didn't get a bite till 1130. And that's only because I went to an area on the reservoir where a bridge crosses, and it created a pinch point. A lot of water behind the bridge, a lot of water in front of the bridge. As the water was falling, those fish were being pulled to the bridge. And when I get there, I start seeing threadfin shad. And I hadn't seen schools like this. I'm looking at an acre or two acres of threadfin shad. So I fire a striking 1.5 up there. And, um, I'm cranking it back down to riprap in that bridge culvert. And I felt a fish get behind it, and he came off. I'm like, well, doggone Fire right back in there. I crank it and catch one. Well, it's about a two-pound white bass. 
And I'm like, well, how about that? I hadn't seen one of those in a while. Next cast, another two-pounder. Next cast, another two-pounder. Well, the fourth cast, it felt like somebody slapped the end of that rod with a baseball bat, and I'm hooked up with about a nine-and-a-half or a ten-pound striper, and it pulls me down the way. Unhook it. I troll back up there, and I'm back in them again. I catch about 15 white bass. I catch another five-pound hybrid, or not hybrid, but a striper, and then once I cleared all those fish out of there, I start catching largemouth and smallmouth in the same place. So the moral of that story is, is those bait fish are coming back. We have something that the fish can, can feed on now. The gizzard shad population is coming back as well. And uh, um, I haven't seen a, a rockfish in the lake in years. I haven't seen that many good white bass in years. So we're seeing a good turn in the basis for the food chain, being the, the thread fin and the gizzard shad. The game fish species, the black bass and the true bass are coming back. Crappie fishing is off the chain here right now. It's as good as it's really? been in a long time. Catching a lot of pound and a half to pound and three quarter. Crappie, one of my best buddies, lives down at Parish Landing. He's begging me to come down there to crappie fish because he's catching so many. Um, so we're, we're, we're doing well. Now, one of the things I got involved with, Bailey, was, was right waters. And that's through Yamaha. That's, that's right. Yamaha's conservancy group. And I've been in front, I'm in the Capitol Hill. I've been in front of about 60% of our lawmakers in the House and the Senate. And uh, I went up there looking for money about four years ago to help fund our fish and wildlife. Um, and through the multiple channels and through some bills that were written, we got uh, about $65 million for Kentucky, Tennessee, Alabama, and Mississippi and most of that money stayed home on, in Kentucky and Tennessee on the Cumberland and the Tennessee river chains. Um, most of that money went for re getting educated for our fish and wildlife people, getting them new equipment, um, doing studies, uh, and working with the commercial fishermen and starting a, a carp industry here in our area. We eliminated a lot of these carp because fortunately Bailey, Tennessee, TWRA, Tennessee, um, wildlife has not found any young of the year carp in their sampling for the last couple of years, which is a great thing. These carp don't spawn like our fish do, like our bass and our bluegill and our crappie. They spawn in the spring on a full moon, you know, two or three times during the year. These fish spawn when conditions are right. Hmm. And evidently the conditions have not been um, really good for those fish to spawn. So we're seeing less of them. Our commercial fishermen, Man, they are our only bullet that we have, Bailey, and they are doing a great job removing millions and millions of pounds of these things, opening up that carrying capacity for our game fish to get back into their normal levels. So that's why I'm so excited about things. But with the help of Yamaha uh, and the Right Waters program, um, we've helped lots of things. Um, the snapper fishing issue that we had down in the Gulf coast where the snapper fishery was shut down where you and I couldn't even take our families out to go catch any um, because it had been shut down through the regulations. That was one of the things we've done. We've partnered with Ducks and Wildlife to do coastal restoration with Yamaha Rightwaters and then the Asian carp and the invasive species have been a, another big thing that we've tackled. So it's really cool to work for a company that uh, has has great equipment, boats, motors, jet skis, all those kind of things that are giving that are really giving back to the environment right now and and working hard to make things better. So uh, I'm very pleased to report that we're continuing this. I've signed up for another year of working for Right Waters next season. So uh, I'll be back up on the hill rattling these 
um, lawmakers change to to really pay attention to what happened because it devastated our economy here on Kentucky and Barker Lakes. Nobody was coming down. Businesses closed. Motels, tackle shops. Wow. You name it, gas stations. I mean, I mean, look like a ghost town here, but we're we're doing well again as our lake has come back, and so is our tourism. So, do you th- do you think it's going to eventually be the former Kentucky it was, or just be a, a new Kentucky lake where the the fishing is completely different? Well, I, you know, I got so spoiled living here, Bailey. I could pull up on a corner of a ledge out there in the middle of the lake and catch a hundred every day of the year. And then go to the next corner and catch 25 and go to the next corner and catch 50 and go to the next place and catch 50. And I've gotten very spoiled here. So what I think is going to happen, um, the behavior of these fish have changed. Um, you know, they, they don't like being around these carp. Um, so they don't get out there in the open water. These carp are filter feeders for the most part. And they take the best um, current breaks out there on the river channel. Uh, the same place that I used to catch bass on a shell bed or a stump bed or whatever, these carp have taken over because that's where the current brings the food to them. All they do is sit there and eat and get big. Well, that's what my bass used to do. And now they don't go out there like they did. So it's changed the way I've had to fish in Kentucky Lake. And it's it's taken me some time because I don't get to fish here near as much as I used to because I'm always around the world fishing somewhere else. I have to go to some place called the St. Lawrence River in the summertime. And, you know, that's a terrible place to have to go. And no Toby and Florida in the spring, you know, so I don't get to fish here near as much as I do, but I'm, I'm having to relearn, having to relearn technique. I'm having to relearn location. So it's, uh, it's been a, it's been good for me because it's made me pattern fish instead of whole fish. Like we all do when we're on our home waters. It's super intriguing to me. Uh, and while I, I hate to see what's, what's happened to Kentucky with the whole carp deal, I think the part of the angler in me thinks it's pretty unique to see, how anglers are anglers and the fish and the fishery itself uh, adjusts through like because mother mother nature is so intriguing uh, and it's kind of seeing how where you think it might be the end and there, there's definitely a decline but it's super interesting to see the adjustments that are made uh, yeah, from each different group that's involved whether the it's, make, it's making a U-turn and yeah. you know that's the one hope that I have because I really don't have a lot of ammunition to deal with these carp is I'm hoping that mother nature will throw an audible and some kind of a bacteria or weather condition or water condition will have an adverse effect on these fish and it will put these fish in a small niche and control them. Are we going to be rid of them? I don't know. I don't think so. I'm, I'm less hopeful about that. I'm more about management of them now than eradication. So uh, we're, we're working on some things now. You know, the fisheries, uh, Folks here in Kentucky uh, are really um, studying these fish, trying to figure out every little um, intricacy about them. TWRA, we're we're working with other agencies up the Mississippi River, STEM in Missouri and Illinois, and uh, we're all working at this very hard. And there are a lot of very concerned people, a lot of really smart brains working on this problem. And we, will we find an answer? Will we find a solution? I don't know, but I think we're going to find a way to manage them quicker than we will anything else. I've heard rumor of folks figuring out a recipe for these things that actually taste good. Oh, they're good. They're good. See, they're not like a, a regular carp. You know, a, the regular carp, the golden carp that we've seen in our reservoirs, they're invasive species too. They were introduced here eons ago. They're actually from Europe. 
So, um, and those fish may or may not taste very well unless you do several things. And Asian carp is actually a delightful tasting fish. It's a very light flavored fish. It's not fishy tasting at all. I've had fillets. I've had them baked. I've had them with caper sauce on them. I've had them uh, deep fried like we fry crappie and bluegill and walleye. I've had them in fish balls. Um, there's a there's a definite market for this. And here in a couple of our local restaurants here in Paducah, they call them Kentucky Lake Grouper. You may see, <laughs> uh, you may, if you see the term silverfin, okay. silverfin at your grocery in the fish department, that's an Asian carp. And don't be afraid to eat it. It is a filter feeder. It eats nothing off the bottom. It eats nothing that's dead. It's eating the plankton in the water. Um, and that's what they eat. So it's, it's, a, it's a really delightful fish to eat. I think that honestly, that might have worked. The one thing in our favor from Asian carp is that the fact that you can eat them and that they actually taste good. Because if they didn't, that would really suck. Because all that like fish you're eradicating going to waste. Where now you, you can put it to use. Like we can, exactly, you can put yeah. them to use, and they can be utilized as a great fertilizer. They can be liquefied and chopped up, and now it's smelly as all get out. But it can be used as fertilizer. It can be used as pet food. And one of the interesting markets that's developed are the Maine, the state of Maine, the lobster fishermen up in the Northeast really like to use Asian carp for their lobster bait. Um, and so we're shipping a lot of those up there uh, as lobster bait. So um, <laughs> skin a cat a different way, we're doing it with these Asian carp and making money at it too. I, I want to know who's the first guy that's like, yeah, send on those up here. I want to try it for my lobster bait. I want to know who's the first one that did who tried that. I don't care. I just wish more of those guys would order a lot more of them. So, um, but we're finding ways to deal with it. And, you know, like I said, I, I think eradication may be out of the picture here and, and management, you know, Bassmaster Elite Series went to Pickwick this year. Right. Uh, Brandon Lester won the event with about 90 pounds for four days. Um, and fishing was tough. And I'm seeing the same fish that I saw in Kentucky like 10 years ago when the carp population was really burgeoning and the fish health and welfare was, was going downhill. They were very thin, very frail, hard to find bait fish. I'm seeing the very same thing. I made the, I made the statement at Pickwick on the stage to get ready. You all are getting ready to have this, a, a real crash in the fish population here. And from what I'm hearing of tournaments that have been there this fall, the Bassmaster Federation was there yeah. this last week, several guys zeroed. Uh, the tournament was one with just a little over 43 pounds which is less than a three pound average for five fish a day. Um, second was 37 and third was 33. And after that, it was pretty slim pickings, you know, one or two or three fish a day is what the guys caught, which is typical here in the fall fall fishing on the Tennessee river has always been tough, but it's never been this tough. Yeah. And uh, I think, I think you're going to see a decline about every 10 years with each lake moving further and further upstream. Um, you know, we had a, an event, um, on the classic waters this year at Loudon and Teleco in Knoxville, I saw Asian carp up there. That's the head oh, of the Tennessee man. river. I saw them two years ago up there. So, um, and, and in the classic in 2020, I saw them in Gunnersville. uh, made comment on stage. Lee Livesey snagged an 85 pound big head carp in practice up there. Um, I saw silver carp in the lake. So they're, they're from one end to the other. If it touches the Mississippi river, um, it, it's, it's all up and down everything in the Mississippi, the Missouri, that whole stem of the middle of the country is absolutely, uh, um, 
full of agent carp and we've just got to find ways to get them out of there as fast as we can. Yeah. I think, I think that tournament last week on Pickwick, um, I was staying with my buddy Nolan Miner, and we were talking about if we we're looking at the results from day one. I think it was like four pounds was tenth on day one. There, it was something yeah. ridiculous. Yeah, it's it's we, we were talking offline briefly about while some lakes might rise with this and and get over this hump of this Asian carp coming in, but some are going to see a decline. And right now, what you mentioned is Pickwick is seeing a decline. You know. From this from this subject, you know, seeing what happened to Kentucky Lake and what you're referring to is that the further these fish go upstream is basically these lakes are going to see the same thing that happened to Kentucky Lake happen to those bodies of water, correct? That's kind of what I'm predicting. That's what I'm seeing. If the conditions are, uh, align themselves and those numbers proliferate like they did on Kentucky Lake, you know, we've had these in the system since the 70s. They, they got loose in the 70s from aquaculture ponds in Arkansas and Louisiana years ago. And, and, and it was the two, four, eight, 16, 32, the multiplication. And then once they got into that wonderful environment, the Tennessee river, it just, it just, it just completely exploded. The population went crazy. So uh, as we see that move up, you know, one of the epicenters was the Illinois river off the Mississippi river. And that's where I fished my first Bassmaster event in fall of 91. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Illinois river at one point, one in every, there was only one in every 10 fish that was even a native game fish for a while. We're seeing those numbers come down in the populations in the, in the Illinois river are, are on the rise for game fish too. So evidently there's a, there's a bust and boom period. And then everything tapers back down to where, the native game species have a, have a foothold and have a chance. So hopefully it will get better. Hopefully it will get better. Do you think, so, I mean, I feel like you're spot on. I mean, I, I can't speak for it being that, I mean, I, I live up in the North. I can't speak being on the, the lake daily and I'm sure local guides and the fishery, the fishing game could speak way better to what the day to day looks like on these different fisheries. But Say, say this is the case, right, where each lake is going to receive that same treatment as these Asian carp get further and further upstream. Do you think that our process of eradicating or fixing this issue as it comes to each lake is going to get better or more efficient as it goes upstream? Well, I'm hoping so. For what we're learning down here, um, we put in a bioacoustic fish fence, a bath on below Barkley Dam. Um, to monitor what can go across that fish fence. And that fish fence is a, is a line of bubbles, sound, and lights. And we're doing studies right now to see what moves upstream, what moves downstream. Um, and, and we've tagged Asian carp and native species to see if they penetrate that or whatever. If it were just to slow down the incoming carp by 60%, Think of the millions of fish. Six million fish a year were being put into Kentucky Lake just through the lock alone. Just mathematics just through the lock alone. Every time the gate opened at the bottom end of Kentucky Lake, closed the gate, the lock went up, the boats went through, they opened the other side. They were putting another six to 10,000 fish in there every lock cycle. So the bioacoustic fish fence is designed so that it would keep those fish below and the bioacoustic fish fence, the bath, has been very uh, 
significant in keeping different kinds of invasives out of the way in other places and other situations. So we've got one in place and working below the dam on Barkley right now. We'll need two here on Kentucky Lake as we're getting closer and closer to finishing up a secondary navigation lock on Kentucky Lake. But we'll need to have two on on the on those two locks as well. So we get those in there, that'll slow down the the, the actual uh, incorporation of the fish into the lakes and let our commercial fishermen go to work on them. We can slow them down significantly if we can just stop the entrance to the lakes. That whole bath deal of the bubbles with the sounds and the lights super impressive to me. I don't know why. It's really cool. It's a great That's system. Awesome. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's a non-invasive system. We're not putting any electricity in the water. We're not putting any chemicals in the water, but by sound, light, and bubbles, we're, we're putting a fence up so that those fish don't penetrate. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. So with, with this trickling effect of what the, these fish do to these fisheries, do you foresee I mean, obviously you're seeing a change in Kentucky in terms of how these fish adapt and how fishermen have to adapt. Do you see, I mean, I don't know timeline wise, but let's say 20, 30 years that the TVA might fish completely different than what we know of it now. Oh, it, it, you know, since the invasion, the lake has fished totally different than, than I ever remember it fishing. Fish is more like it did in the seventies when we really didn't fish offshore structure out behind us. We fished the bank and the carp, you know, grass carp aren't that big a deal to a bass, but the silvers and these big heads, really, it's it's just as if I drive my truck through the through, through the room right there where you're at through your your living room. Um, about two trips through there, you're going to get the hell out of the way. And these fish are big; they're noisy underwater. Um, and you know, a three pound bass sees a 25 pound Goliath coming at him. He's going to, he's going to haul butt. He's going to go hide. Um, so it's made our lakes turn more into a shallow water fishery than it ever has. Um, I'm trying to remember if I even caught a keeper of largemouth offshore on Kentucky Lake this year. And I don't, I cannot come off my head saying that I caught some out there cranking a big plug. Um, I caught some on some points that were attached to the bank on a big plug, but I didn't catch any out there where I used to catch them. I'm, you know, bait man films me and I said, man, I used to, I mean, I caught 35 pounds here one time, caught hundred on this one, one time, you know, won this tournament here, did well this tournament there. And those are just fond memories as, as I see them now, but I'm new techniques are, are, are showing up here. Very seldom. Did you ever see an angler fishing with spinning rod on Kentucky Lake? Well, I mean, you can catch a lot of bass now on an Ed rig as you can up there in your part of the world. A drop shot has become a good player. Um, you know, a baby Z2 on a drop shot is about as deadly up there as it is down here now. Hmm. So uh, you're, see you're seeing fish getting back in the bushes good, you know, for longer periods of time. Um, any heavy, shallow water cover that I could find, I know I'm going to catch some fish around now. That's super intriguing. Uh, it's, it's, I think that's going to be the interest, most interesting part of this swing is seeing how these fisheries adapt and how they change. But I got with that when one question I have is obviously with these, these fisheries being able to lock down essentially to the different bodies of water in, in general, how do they all affect each other from just like a system? Well, every Tennessee river lake has its own personality 
And um, starting at Loudon and Teleco at the upper end, um, it's a, there's a lot of vertical cover in the lake, a lot of verticality in the lake, a lot of rock changes in the lake. Then you get to Watts Bar, and there's some grass there. Then you get to Chickamauga. I thought it was really interesting that you made a statement. You thought that's the most diverse lake that you that you fished, um, and and I think it's one of the least diverse lakes on the Tennessee River chain. You've oh, wow. got offshore structure. You've got the you've got grass, and you don't have a lot in between. Where you move on downstream to to Gunnersville, um, you've got a lot of grass in between the bank and the river channel, where most of the population of the fish live. Moving on down the river chain, you know, to to Wheeler. I think Wheeler is one of the most underrated lakes. We've got grass back in it right now, and they're catching huge numbers of five to seven pound fish in Wheelers right now. Then you get to my favorite little lake, Wilson. It's deep, rocky. It's clear. It's when I won my first Bassmaster Elite Series event uh, years ago on a jerk bait. A big smallmouth in there, and then you get to Pickwick. That's a river run lake, and then it leads to Kentucky Lake, which is the biggest, one of the biggest man made lakes in the United States. That um, has it, it's a, that's a lowland reservoir. So um, I think they all have their own personalities. I think um, there's some generalized traits that remain the same because it's the same river, but they all fish differently, uh, which is which is one of the neatest things. And the only lake that I've not spent much time on is um, the lake right there in Chattanooga, uh, below um, Chick. The name escapes me oh, right now. Nickajack, thank you. Uh, Nickajack for years on the Tennessee River uh, TVA creel surveys, that was the easiest place on the whole river to catch a three-pound bass, the least amount of time to catch a three-pound bass, and it's always been that way, um, except in you know in the 80s when we had the classic there. Uh, Charlie Reed won that classic uh, with a very low fish count um, as far as weight. I think he had 14 fish that he won with, and most of them didn't weigh a pound and a half. Um, now it's not that way now it's got grass in it and anytime you have aquatic grasses in the lake it, it provides more area and your carrying capacity goes up right so um, we've been low on grass in the Tennessee River here the last three or four years due to high water flow and high turbidity and hopefully we'll see some of those grasses come back and eelgrass is making a real comeback in Gunnersville, and now it's in Wheeler uh, and it's it's in the lower end of Kentucky Lake as well so it's an it's not an invasive species. It's a native species, so it's not really on the target hit list for our um, for our um, uh, you know to to kill all those invasive right. species. So it's a it's a native species. That is super. That that's awesome to know, though. Like that the fact that that's coming back. Yeah, it's, it's really cool, and it changes the way Gunnersville is fishing now. Um, you know, it, it, it is, it's a complete carpet out to 15 feet of water. So Gunnersville fishes a whole lot different than it did 10 years ago. That, I mean, one, that's just great news, but two, uh, if you haven't spent much time on Nickajack, I have been on it a few times with my buddy, Mr. Caleb Bell, who lives up there right in Chattanooga. And that place is awesome. It's got that, a lot of fish in it. It's got smallmouth in it. It's got great big spotted bass in it. Um, I, it's 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 a bucket list of mine. It's not far from me, but I don't have any tournaments on that body of water because right. it's a relatively small lake. So yeah. that that's why it's just eluded me. But I'll I'll make my way there soon enough. Yeah. Heck yeah! Well, that's awesome. I I feel like I could go on for for hours talking about the TVA with you because it's a it's a system of fishery that I think is probably the most intriguing 
out of the country. When it, I mean, we have different chains of lakes in Florida and how those different lakes interact with each other. But I think uh, out of our whole country, the TVA is the most interesting because one, obviously being, you know, man-made and being able to fluctuate and being all of them kind of being very unique in their own way. I'm just so intrigued by, it, especially from New York dealing with only glacial lakes. Sure. We don't, we don't get too much that's different. So it's super intriguing to go down there. So I could talk about this for hours, but um, I just want to say thank you first for taking the time out tonight to come on here and talk with us, drop some knowledge on us. One thing uh, I like our first question we asked you, we always ask our guests a final question their first time on the show. And that question is if you could sit down and have a steak and a beer with three different individuals. Oh, wow. They don't have to be fishing. They can be alive now or a thousand years ago. It doesn't matter. Anybody in the world, uh, what three individuals would you invite to have steak and a beer and pick their brain? Well, that's, that's interesting. Um, I always love to have a beer with Rick Klein. Uh, I, I love to really, my, my fishing hero, without a doubt, um, probably responsible for how more fishermen fish in finding fish and breaking a lake down just to his theories and what he's taught all of us. I love Rick's sense of humor. Uh, his wife, Melissa, is just a wonderful human being. I love her, too. So Rick and Melissa would be uh, the first first pair there that I would I would love to have dinner with again. Um, as far as other anglers, you know, obviously – my mentors, I'd love to have them back. Um, I, that's, that's really cool. Um, I, I'm sitting here thinking one, one that I would really like that I always admired. And because I bought his book, those Brown bass, I would like to have sit down with Billy Westmoreland. And, oh. um, I dedicated a lot of my youth to learning how to use a spinning rod because of a book of his. It was another book uh, that he was kind of reciting some of the uh, tournament stories and, and how he took a spinning rod and light line to largemouth country and, and forged a, a strong fishing career, making classics and winning events. And, uh, you know, obviously a legend on Dale hollow catching those giant smallmouth. Uh, I'd like to, I'd like to spend a little time with Billy Westmoreland. Um, and a third person that I would love to um, spend time with, um, someone who uh, uh, I have fished against for eons. I have not fished against him in a very long time, but I'm proud to say that Larry Nixon is coming back to the Bassmaster Elite Series. Um, I will buy him that steak and buy him that beer. We ran the same boat for years, spent a lot of time together. It's going to be great to see Larry back out there on the Bassmaster Elite Series with us. Uh, he's a great fisherman, a super competitor. Um, and, and Larry um, is basically responsible, in my mind, for a technique that became very famous here on Kentucky Lake, and that's stroking a jig. Um, Larry was the basis of that. He taught some local friends of mine that technique, uh, Bill and Billy Schrader, just humongous winners here on Kentucky Lake. Uh, and then they taught us all how to stroke a jig out here on the ledges. So uh, I'd like to, I'd like to learn where Larry um, came up with that technique and spend some more time. I'm just glad I'm going to be able to spend some more time with him. So uh, those would, those would be three interesting ones. I'd like to like to have a beer and a steak with. 
Heck yeah. I think the whole fishing world is excited to watch Larry come back. That's I mean, he's the million dollar man. First guy to ever win a million dollars. Um, he's the same guy that he was when he started bass fishing. Uh, very humble, um, very charismatic, um, an unbelievable speaker. If you've never got to hear him do a seminar, his seminars just full of knowledge and he wants to teach people to be better fishermen. He, that's why he guided years ago and he taught hundreds of people how to be better bass fishermen. And then when he got in the tournament game, he taught the rest of us that uh, he could certainly catch him as well. And he can still do it even today. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, I can't wait to watch it. And uh, Mark, for real, thank you so much for for taking time out tonight. Uh, we look forward to hopefully getting you back on here here soon to drop some more knowledge on us. And uh, looking for enjoy your your off season coming up because it sounds like you get. I mean, shoot, yeah, it's almost halfway <laughs> through November. You're going you're going in a couple months. It's go time here. I've got my new boat here. I'm waiting on some new parts to get in uh, from TH Marine so I can rig it. I've got to I've got to get a depth finder or two together and and I'll be ready to go get my get my batteries in and things like that. But um, I've got to take the wrap off of this one, get it cleaned up. Uh, it's headed to uh, uh, very close to Elmira, New York. A good friend of mine, Greg Johnson, that runs um, a lot of the ABA tournaments up there and the, on uh, the Finger Lakes. Uh, his, this is the second Skeeter he's bought from me, so it'll be headed up that way. And then I'll re-rig another one and get started again for next year. Headed to the uh, 33rd year that I've been doing this and just very fortunate to get to do it all this time. Heck yeah. Well, we're looking forward to watching you and rooting you on. And uh, again, thank you a ton for getting on here. It's been a pleasure and we'll talk to you soon. Well, thank you for having me and call me anytime. I love to spread the word about this invasive problem that we have in the United States. If you want to learn more about it, go to the Yamaha website, go to the right waters portion there and see what we're doing. Um, we are, we're bound and determined to fight these invasive species as best we can. And uh, we're going to continue to do that. Uh, but, but anytime you want to talk, I'm here to do it. Thanks for having me. And I appreciate y'all very much. Awesome. Uh, I'm going to go find those links that you just mentioned. And for folks that are interested in reading about it, I'm going to drop them in the show notes on MP3 and the YouTube side. So if you guys are intrigued, I will drop that in the show, the show description as well as Mark's social media and his YouTube will be there as well. So you guys can go check out the show as he was referring to earlier on in the show. Well, uh, Mark, thank you again. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Good night. All right. Take care. That was awesome. Uh, I mean, you guys want to talk about knowledge getting dropped. I mean, there, there really isn't a much better person in the fishing industry to be talking with than Mr. Mark Menendez in terms of from a learning standpoint, having that biology background and also being on the front lines of being on the water every single day and being able to report back and combine those worlds. Uh, it's pretty dang cool. And it's pretty dang cool to talk to him. And I hope we can get him back on here soon. Uh, we have a bunch of awesome guests lined up moving here forward. I do encourage you guys, as Mark mentioned that links that he has, but also his, his social, everything down below. I encourage you guys to follow along. Uh, read up on some of this stuff because conservation is, I can tell you right now, being working in the industry, conservation is on the forefront for every brand, every organization, and a lot of anglers' minds. And uh, it's very important for you guys to be doing your part in your region and make sure you guys are being attentive. Even the small things, if everyone's doing the small things day by day, it, it can it can add up over time. It can really benefit the fisheries that we have some of the fisheries that have been around for a long time. Some of the new fisheries that are coming about. I mean, you see some new lakes being built 
and 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 grown in Texas. I mean, you're seeing some stuff like that happen. So it's super cool. And if you guys do have specific topics that you don't think are being talk, uh, talked about enough from a conservation standpoint or fisheries, reach out to us. We'd love to research it for one, and then two, get on the right people to talk about subject to try and help spread the word. So sign the DMs or, or shoot us an email, and we, I would love to have that conversation. So let us know. But uh, some some guests moving up forward for this show. Uh, coming up on Friday, Mr. Taylor Watkins, who won the last NPFL event um, down in Florida, is going to come on the show here. Uh, he's going to come on for Friday's episode. And next Tuesday, we're actually doing a dual stream. Uh, everybody seemed to like the Halloween episode we did. Uh, we're actually going to dual stream with Kevin Baxter, who's Mark's uh, camera guy, and do a little Thanksgiving-themed show next week. So that'll be next Tuesday Night Live. It'll be streamed on our show, our YouTube channel, but also Kevin uh, Kevin Baxter, the Bateman, uh, his YouTube channel. So you guys can see it over there, whichever one you'd like to watch. And then... Next Friday, uh, after Thanksgiving, will be uh, Cody Milton, who was one angler of the year for the Hobie BOS Tournament of Champions. Uh, and then we're going to try to get the winner on. We're going to talk about that because he smoked us. Uh, again, if you guys want to see how the Tournament of Champions went for me, that Top 50 Championship last week down in Louisiana on Cattle Lake, uh, I'm going to be dropping those videos here soon. Episode 1, I'm trying to get out for tomorrow night. Almost done editing it, so you guys can check that out below. YouTube channel is linked below. But I believe that is it for tonight, guys. I appreciate everybody tuning in. It's good to be back. Don't have any travel planned until probably February, which is nice. I might travel for Christmas, but that, that's it. The shows will still go on for that. It should be Andy and I firing on all cylinders for the next couple months here. To get some more consistency back in this show. We do have a bunch of stuff coming for next year. We are this close with getting apparel for you guys. And not just like your basic apparel. We're going to have some pretty cool stuff coming too. Um, so be on the lookout for that. You guys will be able to order your Serious Angler or Business from the Bass Boat apparel or Lure Lab apparel. Um, we're going to have that site up and running here shortly. So we're excited for that. Some, some other changes coming next year, which we'll announce in probably the next few weeks. Uh, changes that are for the better. So... Hope you guys enjoyed tonight's episode. As always, appreciate you guys, and we'll see you on Friday. Well, that was an awesome show. Hope you guys enjoyed it. If you can and your app allows it, please leave us a rating and review. It really helps us get seen more, which allows us to access more time and more variables to be able to bring to the show to make it better for you guys. So hope you enjoyed it. And if you did and you liked some of the things we talked about in this episode and want to check out our show partners, all of that is in every single show description. You can click down there. It's got all of our discount codes, all of our links to our show partners where you guys can go and support the people that support this show and help us make this show happen. And of course, this show does not happen without you guys. You guys know we appreciate you. You're the Sears Sanger fam. You're the reason we're here. Appreciate y'all, and we'll see y'all on the next one.